Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 28, The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. This was the uprising that rocked our land. Thirteen districts rebelled against the country that fed them, loved them, protected them. Brother turned on brother until nothing remained. And then came the peace. Hard fought, sorely won. A people rose up from the ashes and a new era was born. But freedom has a cost. When the traitors were defeated, we swore as a nation we would never know this treason again. And so it was decreed that each year, the various districts of Pan Am would offer up in tribute one young man and woman to fight to the death in a pageant of honor, courage, and sacrifice. The lone victor, bathed in riches, would serve as a reminder of our generosity and our forgiveness. This is how we remember our past. This is how we safeguard our future. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books, literature, and each month we will take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature and determine whether it's worthy of its reputation, whether that reputation is positive or negative. And this time with me, and you know, I was thinking about this today because sometimes I plan it out and sometimes I don't. And I was thinking, number one, what I was going to say, but number two, I think we started this as a joke. I think you were the first episode, so you came up with it with the the Lenny and George. But for some reason, this has just gone on <laughs> for the entire time. So I guess this is our shtick. So today, I have with me the Hamish <laughs> to my Katniss is Tom Penneries. I knew you were gonna go for that. I'm not cool Did enough you? to be Lenny Kravitz. So yeah, I guess I um, could have made yeah. you sin up, I, but you seem like you could <laughs> without being a drunk. I feel like yeah. you could be a 
a pretty yeah interesting probably i think i don't think we i did lenny and george in the first episode in fact i think i said you were the mabel to my dipper and that's how it started yeah so we had some sort of reference Mm. but it's been a theme where we always pick out which character we're going to be which has been fun some of them are harder than others to come up with that's true that's true yeah, and I have to apologize to our listeners if I sound a little more off than I usually am. It's not because I'm drunk. I just simply have a pretty <laughs> bad cold, and um, I've been fighting this thing. And I'm going on. I'm 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 also working on about three hours of sleep. Oh, so um, yeah, I didn't sleep very well last night because of your cold. Yeah, because oh, I can't. I I get very bad. Like I have a very very bad stuffy post nasal drip thing going. So I like slept for a few hours woke up i couldn't breathe and instead of breathing through my mouth and snoring and waking my wife up all night i went and slept on the couch just to you know so that i wouldn't worry about that and i just was in and out of sleep all night so thankfully they've closed school for tomorrow here so if i'm not up to it um i can just relax tomorrow maybe read uh, one of our next books. Oh boy, like I get that. started on that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's <laughs> sitting there. Maybe I'll read a couple of comics along with it. So yeah. yeah, take a breather. Yeah, no spoilers as to what it is. Yeah, no, I mean that book. That book um, is one of those books where I think I might end up reading like one or two like trades or graphic novels or something like you know as as a as a break every once in a while you know because it's just big. Yeah. Well, because I do that sometimes. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So this time, though, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, this time we are going to be talking about the Hunger Games. And this has a near and dear place in my heart, which is one of the reasons why I chose it. And I noticed, I think it was Robert, my criticizer, had said something mm. about <laughs> oh, one of the many, the many people Games. in your life who have betrayed you. Yeah, so many, so many. I mean, we had a speaker today in chapel, and he said, "Have you ever been betrayed?" And I turned around and looked right at my department chair. And then I was sitting with seniors, so the seniors started laughing because they saw what I did very dramatically. But anyways, I have been betrayed, yes, many times before, and I guess I will be. But yeah, so we're talking about the Hunger Games, and Mm -hmm. as with all, there are several important questions that we come upon each episode, and one of our important ones, or at least a really interesting one to hear what your history is with this particular book. I read the whole trilogy before the first movie came out, but I wasn't reading them because the movie came out. I think, I think, um... I'm trying to remember when I first read this. I was living in the Charlottesville area by then, so it was after... Um, when did this come out? 2008, I believe. 2008, yeah. So it was. So I read it before 2012. I probably read it around 2010, 11. It, 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 like, I think Mockingjay had just come out in hardcover when I read all three of them. Um, and Amanda had read them first, and she was... Because we had heard about it, in I think Entertainment Weekly or some magazine, a friend had recommended it or whatever, and then I then we went we ended up going and seeing the first movie in the theater. Ended up renting the other three on um, Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. Uh, and to be completely honest, that third movie and fourth movie really could have just been one movie, but that's a whole other <laughs> discussion. discussion. Yeah, yeah. The, the Mockingjay Part One just 
it was like I was like, why are we watching this? Um, but I have I as much as I enjoyed Mockingjay, I think it's too bloated anyway. So, uh, but as far as uh, as this is concerned, um, yeah, this was this was one that uh, I I remember reading. Um, a couple of my a bunch of my students had read it. Uh, this was the thing for a number of my students that replaced that other really popular um, young adult saga that was that was being published. Twilight. Yes. Were you trying to time. not name it? Yeah. It was, but yeah, no, no, so um, and this is um, this is the second time I've read this book. So I have not read this in a good, let's say, seven or eight years. I would say that's yeah similar to me in the fact that this has been a, a little while since I've read it, which I'm glad there was a bit of a space because I knew the majority of the story beats, but mm-hmm. I was really engaged in this time. Not as as if I wasn't engaged the or weren't engaged the first time, but it really makes me want to read the the next two again. So I might between other books for right now, I'm about to be reading two at once, so I might na- need to take a break, but. I think this, even though while growing up, I read novels that were probably considered YA, though I don't know that they necessarily had that particular title. I mean, I guess they were in the young adult, but I feel like YA is more of a a modern term that has caught on, like for a very specific... I I could be wrong. I guess we could always talk to librarians about that. I I think we could talk to a librarian or two, but I want to say that our modern understanding, sorry, our contemporary understanding of what YA is 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 pretty much defined um, over the course of the last... It probably goes back prior to 20 years ago, but it I think like what we think of it, because like when I was in junior high school... YA literature as we have it now really didn't exist in that way. You know, there were a few novels that um, some people would say, you know, this is for like your group. Like uh, nobody, nobody gave me the giver, but that's, I was in junior high when that came out. Um, But for instance, like another book that I definitely have on my list, like S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders is like one of the original YA novels. But even then, like when you look at the history of, of the young adult, young adult literature it really isn't until like the late 90s when all the millennials were in junior high and then high school that this section of the bookstore really exploded a lot of it probably has to do with um with start them starting with like harry potter and then growing into things that were older and and they would keep reading you know even though i don't know if you consider harry potter young adult but it definitely like harry potter did start something with that particular generation I, I feel like this, I guess I, if, if we consider Harry Potter, then maybe it's not my first, but it was certainly the first book that a student lent me, So mm-hmm. and now I've gotten into the habit of if I see a student reading something in particular and it, it's piqued my interest, I might ask if I can borrow it, but a student lent this to me, and it was my second year teaching, and I remember really, really liking it and liked it so much that it ended up going, I guess, to Amazon and getting the box set of the trilogy and mm-hmm. just read those so quickly and really got invested in and engaged in them and heartbroken with mocking Jay and certain things that happen in that particular novel. And I remember afterwards, because I liked that so much, the same student let me divergent and it may have been I'm I'm heavily influenced by 
if I play or read or watch something and then something follows it that's almost spiritually similar, mm-hmm. not exactly, but just something that's similar, and chances are I'm not going to like the second one as much because I've already put my heart into the first one. So reading Divergent, I didn't like Divergent. Mm-hmm. The films are okay. I, I was entertained by them. But just reading it, I thought, uh, this is about, you know, Triss is kind of like Katniss. I feel like I've already read this. So I ended up skimming that a bit. But yeah, so that was, I guess, 2011 and, and read them all and, and watched all the, the films, which I feel like the films, it's been a while since I've seen Mockingjay 1 and 2, but I rewatched Hunger Games this weekend just to see what it was like and pretty faithful, actually. I mean, there are some certain mm-hmm. moments that they, they take a bit of a, a turn away from the actual subject material, like the Mockingjay, how she actually gets that pin, which is kind yeah. of a little weird that they do that. But, but I, you know, pretty good. And so, yeah, I think it's, I really like it. And there's several reasons why I really like this. And Katniss, I think, is a, a really interesting heroine that's not perfect. And she, yeah, she's very complex, I think. So I, I really like this, and I'm, I'm glad I, I brought it back. I was worried at first. I thought, is this going to be too easy? But I, I, I felt like I was going to get burned out by Les Mis and thought maybe this will be a good break before. No, and so, yeah, I, I took it. But I, I think there's depth to it. I think that YA sometimes gets, which this could be a discussion for another time, of course, but I think YA gets a bad rap sometimes. And sometimes it is pretty shallow. But I think there are some really, like, the hate you give or this. I think there are many layers that you can really pull back and, and discuss, and that's why I chose that. We were actually having, this is a conversation for another day. We were literally having a conversation like this yesterday at work <laughs> because, um, I, you know, I have a couple of people who I work with who are like really, who get really offended when they hear that, like, you know, maybe teaching some of the classics is not something you should do. And I kind of agree with them. I don't think you should, to, to borrow a, a cliche, I don't think you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that my view on, whether or not to teach classic literature and whether to teach contemporary modern literature, I fall somewhere in the middle because I think that I, I disagree with the fact that the, the the literary canon or at least what's assigned in high schools seems to end at a certain year, probably because that's the last year they stop buying books, you know, but like it's just like all the literature, most of the literature that I read in high school, the, I think the, the most recent one was from like the 1950s or 1960s. You know, when I was going to high school in the 1990s, where why weren't we reading stuff that was more contemporary? But at the same time, I am not one of those people who's like, you know, oh, you need to give up Shakespeare and read, <laughs> read Twilight, you know, or something like that. Because um, I just don't think, I, I don't like how the pendulum swings back and forth. But sure. um, but I do think there's, there are certain YA books that, that there is not a lot to unpack. They're very plot driven. The characters are very stock in a way, you know, there's not much to them and you're, you're there for the popcorn, you know, you're there for the, in the same way you watch a, a big dumb action film on screen, you know, but then there are novels. I haven't read the hate you give. Uh, I've heard it's really, really good. Um, I, it's in our book room. I might, I might get it off the shelf at some point. Um, but I remember, uh, there was, there were parts of, of Eleanor and park, for instance, that I felt were like really oh, yes. much deeper than, 
And there are some others that I've read, um, a couple that are on my list, uh, more contemporary ones that I'm like, yeah, there is quite a bit to unpack. Even the John Green books, um, I've read either bits and pieces of or the whole of, you know, there's something to unpack in that, even if they are very, very straightforward. So I don't discount young adult literature, um, especially since both of us are way older than the audience it's intended for, you know, so it's easy to dismiss it if you're 41 like I am. And, um, you know, this is, you know, the Hunger Games. I think I read this in a weekend, you know, like, you know, it's, it's an easy read for you. But a 12 or 13 year old might read this and, and really, really find something in it and, and really find a lot to unpack and stuff and, and, and really get something out of it. Absolutely. I enjoyed the movie, by the way. But the I remember, one. yeah, I remember sitting in a the theater thinking um, I'm enjoying this, but I felt it was very by the numbers. Like, I knew the story beats so well that I was like, okay, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. So it was just kind of like, all right, this is all right. I enjoyed, out of all four of the movies, Catching Fire was my favorite. Okay. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen any of them, but I just yeah. remember really, really I'm liking thinking about, Catching Fire. Yeah, rewatching that. It's, it's interesting because I think you become such fans of, you know, the novels, and then you're wondering, who are they going to cast for this person, and how are they going to present this like I oh my friend and I my best friend Chelsea and I went to see Catching Fire I'm pretty sure and probably Hunger Games together because I got her to read it as well and I think we both were wondering about Joanna and because the whole thing is like that she just like takes off her clothes in the elevator Mm. after the the parade of tributes and everything so like how is that how are they going to deal with all this and and all that stuff yeah so I feel like they did a pretty good job imagining this world. I mean, obviously, we're going to potentially nitpick anything. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, you know, it's it's that whole thing, you know, don't don't judge the, the movie by my book. And, and exactly. maybe we get too invested in the, in the books that we can't go in with, with an open mind. Who knows? Well, I want to talk a little bit about Suzanne Collins. So she actually started in 1991 writing for children's television. She worked on several Nickelodeon shows, including the Emmy-nominated hit Clarissa Explains It All. (laughs) Starring Sable Junior High School alum Melissa Joan Hart. Oh, man. Such a fun show. And then The Mystery Files of Shelby Woo, which I've actually never heard of. For preschool viewers, she penned multiple stories for the Emmy-nominated Little Bear, also something that I used to watch, and Oswald. She also co-wrote the Rankin-Bass Christmas special Santa Baby with her friend Peter Bacalian, which was nominated by for a WGA Award in am- Animation. And most recently she was on the, or she was the head writer for Scholastic Entertainment's Clifford's Puppy Days and a freelancer on Wow Wow Wubsy. <laughs> oh, Brett used to watch that when he was like wow, wow, a toddler. Yeah, it was a cute, cute cartoon show. While working on a Kids WB show called Generation O, she met children's author and illustrator James Proimos, who talked her into giving children's book a try. So she was thinking one day about Alice in Wonderland, and she was struck by how pastoral the setting must seem to kids who, like her own life and her own kids, I suppose, lived in urban surroundings. And in New York City, you're just much more likely to fall down a manhole than a rabbit hole. And if you do, you're not going to find a tea party. By the way, I found all this on her actual website. So this Mm -hmm. is coming from her. What 
might you find? Well, that's the story of Gregor the Overlander, the first book in her five-part fantasy war series, The Underland Chronicles, which became a New York Times bestseller, and it's been sold into 21 foreign territories. But it was her next series that became uh, an even greater, I would say, international bestseller, which is, of course, The Hunger Games. It was a trilogy. We got The Hunger Games. You have Catching Fire and then Mockingjay, of course. It's spent over or has spent over six years to date on the New York Times bestseller list since publication in September 20, 2008 and has appeared consistently on USA Today and Publishers Weekly bestseller list. It's been sold into 56 territories and 51 languages and in 2010 Collins was named to the Time 100 list as well as the Entertainment Weekly Entertainers of the Year list. And then just a mere four laters The Hunger Games was made into a film that was directed by Gary Ross and it set records for its opening day, 63.367.3 million and opening weekend for a non-sequel. And it's come to gross over 694 million worldwide against its budget of a mere 78 million. So pretty successful, I would say. It was apparently the ninth highest grossing film of 2012. So that's basically where we are there with Suzanne Collins. (laughs) I always have to chuckle when anybody ever brings up Melissa Hart because... um, Oh, Melissa Joan Hart, yeah. So you went to school with her? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, she she was a great... She's a year older than I am. Um, Were you friends? No. We were were both on the student council. I was in seventh grade and she was in eighth grade. So we had a homeroom together because there was a special student council homeroom. And there were a couple of times I interacted with her on like selling dance tickets or something but for the most part um yeah we were you know a couple of my friends uh or people not friends but like kind of acquaintances from high school um knew her because they were like in girl scout troops together or something like that but yeah she was she was way more popular than i was and then she moved away after her eighth or ninth grade year um because she moved to florida to start filming uh clarissa explains it all what a good show that is. I've heard it's really good. It's, you know, not my... <laughs> not your, your your viewing, not your yeah, intended... Yeah, and I didn't you're have... You're not the intended audience. No, it was not the intended audience, and I didn't have cable, so I oh, actually okay. never saw an episode, because I, I suppose I would have checked it out just because everybody knew that the girl from, like, Sayville was on it, so it was one of those things where, like, you know, you would have at least checked it out by, by the time... And by the time Sabrina came out back oh. in, was that like 99 or so, Gosh, 98, 99, yeah. I was in college and, you know. TGIF, man, those the, Fridays with Boy Meets World and Sabrina. I watched a few episodes of Boy Meets World, I will admit that. That that show had its <laughs> moments, so. Yeah. Anyway. All right, I'll let you get into your plot synopsis. Okay, plot synopsis time, thanks to Wikipedia. I am unashamed to take plot synopses from other places because it saves time. On our next episode, I talk to Cliff. That is, you do talk to Cliff. Katniss Everdeen wakes up on the day of the reaping when the tributes are chosen who will take part in the Hunger Games. Her mother and little sister Prim sleep nearby. Her father died in a mine explosion years earlier. 
She goes hunting in the woods outside her district, District 12, with Gail, her best friend. That night at the reaping ceremony, the mayor gives a speech describing how the governments of North America collapsed and the country of Pan Am rose up in their place. A war ensued between the capital and the districts. The capital won, and as a reminder of their defeat, the capital holds the Hunger Games every year. The mayor then introduces Hamish Abernathy, District 12's only living Hunger Games winner, and he's so drunk he ends up falling in his own vomit. The district's female tribute is chosen, and to Katniss's horror, it is Prim. Katniss volunteers immediately in Prim's place. Then the male tribute is selected. It's Peter Malark, and Katniss remembers how years earlier, while searching for food for her family in the garbage bins behind the town shops, Peter gave her bread from his family's bakery. Katniss credits him with saving her that day. Katniss and Peter say goodbye to their friends and families and board a train for the capital. During the trip, she and Peter convince Hamish, their mentor in the games and the person responsible for getting them gifts from sponsors, to take his duties seriously. Once there, Katniss meets with her stylist, Cinna, who is designing her dress for the opening ceremony. At the ceremony, Katniss and Peter wear simple black outfits lit with synthetic flames. The outfits are a huge hit with the audience and make Katniss and Peter stand out among the tributes. The next day, Katniss and Peter attend group training, and the tributes from rich districts who have trained for the games their whole lives, called career tributes, show off their skills. Later, the tributes are interviewed by Caesar Flickerman, a television host. In his interview, Peter reveals that he's had a crush on Katniss for several years. Finally, the time comes. From a small underground room, Katniss is lifted into the arena and the games officially begin. All the tributes are there and in front of her is the cornucopia, which houses an abundance of supplies. Rather than fight, she runs away as Hamish advised. She hikes all day before making camp. After dark, someone starts a fire nearby and it isn't long before a pack of career tributes arrives and kills the person. To Katniss's shock, Peta is with them. The next day, Katniss goes in search of water. She walks for hours and collapses from exhaustion, but ultimately she finds a stream. She's woken in the night by a wall fire moving in her direction, and as she runs away from one of the numerous fireballs falling around her, her leg is grazed by this fireball, and she is injured. That night, while she hides in a tree from the pack of careers below, she notices a young girl named Rue from District 11 in a nearby tree. Rue points out a nest of tracker jackers, wasps engineered by the capital to be lethal, over Katniss's head. And Katniss cuts the branch holding the nest, dropping it onto the careers. Two of them die from the stings and the rest scatter. Katniss is stung a few times as well, but as she's running away, she remembers one of the girls who died had a bow and arrows, the weapons that she's become proficient with from hunting. She runs back to retrieve them, and Peta happens to arrive as she's grabbing the bow. He yells at Katniss to run just as Cato, a very large and dangerous career from District 2, shows up. Peta stops him so Katniss can escape, and she passes out in a ditch shortly after. Katniss encounters Rue again, and the two quickly form a bond and an alliance. They are able to get food, hunting, and foraging, and Katniss realizes that the careers would have difficulty surviving without the supplies at the cornucopia, so she and Rue devise a plan. While Rue lights decoy fires, Katniss sneaks up to the cornucopia. The supplies are in a pyramid away from the main camp, and after the careers leave to investigate the fires, Katniss manages to blow up the supplies by opening, cutting open a bag of apples with her arrows, which sets off the mine set to protect protect the pyramid. When Katniss doesn't find Rue at their meeting spot, she goes looking for her and finds her just as another tribute stabs her with a spear. Katniss kills the other tribute, and when Rue dies, she covers her body in flowers. 
Candace is depressed all the next day until an announcement is made that there has been a rule change. Now two tributes from the same district can be declared winners. Katniss goes looking for Peta, and it takes her a day, but she finally finds him. He's severely injured from his fight with Cato and can barely walk, but Katniss helps him to a cave where they'll be hidden. Thinking Peta may die, Katniss impulsively kisses him. A moment later, she hears a noise outside and finds a pot of broth sent from Haymitch, from one of the sponsors. She realizes that Haymitch will reward her for playing up the romance between her and Peta. The next morning, Katniss sees that Peta's leg is badly infected and he'll die without treatment. Another announcement is made, this time saying each tribute will find an item they desperately need at the cornucopia, at a feast. Katniss knows this means medicine for Peta's leg, but Peta thinks it's too dangerous and doesn't want Katniss to go. Using a sleep syrup that is surreptitiously, <laughs> felicitously sent by Hamish <laughs> from another sponsor, Katniss ends up drugging him and knocking him out. At the cornucopia, Katniss tries to run and grab the item marked for District 12, but she gets into a fight with a female tribute. The tribute is about to kill her. I think it's Clove. When Thresh, the male tribute from District 11, who came to the games with Rue, kills the girl instead. He spares Katniss because of the way she treated Rue, and Katniss makes it back to the cave. She injects Peter with the medicine just before passing out. They stay there for a few days while it rains nonstop outside, and in this time, the romance between Katniss and Peta progresses. When the rain wets up, Peta and Katniss need to find food. Katniss leaves Peta in charge of foraging while she goes to hunt. She comes back hours later and finds a small pile of poisonous berries, that's Nightlock, uh, that Peta collected thinking they were safe. They discover the body of a tribute who Katniss nicknamed Foxface, and Katniss realizes she died from eating the berries, a.k.a. Nightlock. By this point, Cato, who killed Thresh, is the only tribute left, and Katniss decides to keep some berries in case they can trick Cato the same way. Eventually, the streams and ponds dry up, and they know the only source of water is the lake near the cornucopia. Without any other choice, they start walking to the lake. By the lake, Cato comes suddenly barreling toward them. Unexpectedly, however, he runs straight by them. Katniss realizes there are strange creatures chasing him, and they all run to the cornucopia and climb up. The creatures are mutant wolves engineered by the capital, and Katniss realizes they are actually the dead tributes who have been turned into these monsters. Oh, Frankenstein connection. Mm. Taking advantage of the situation, Cato attacks Peta, but Katniss and Peta manage to push him over the edge. The creatures overpower him, but because of the body armor he's wearing, he remains alive for hours until Katniss shoots him out of pity. Just as Katniss and Peta think they've won, another announcement is made that there can be only one winner again. Neither Katniss nor Peta will kill the other, so Katniss takes out the poisonous berries. Just as she and Peta pop them in their mouths, the announcer shouts for them to stop and declares them both winners. They go back to the training center, and Katniss is kept alone for days while she recuperates. When she's let out, Hamish warns her that she's in danger. The capital took her stunt with the berries as an act of defiance, so she has to convince everyone that she was desperate at the thought of losing Peta and not being rebellious, or even her family could be at risk. In their final interview, she's reunited with Peta, who lost his leg and now has a prosthetic. When Hamish tells her she did great, Peta wonders what he means, and Katniss explains everything, including the romance strategy during the games. Peta is angry and hurt, but as they arrive back in District 12, they hold hands one more time to greet the crowd and cameras. Okay, well, first question, of course, or second important question of the night is, did you like this book? Mm-hmm. I liked it the first time I read it, and uh, I wasn't surprised that I liked it again. I was surprised by how much I remembered, because it had been a long time since I'd read it, 
and how much I genuinely still liked the book. Like, you know, not like crazy surprised, but I was like, oh, this is just, you know, I, I didn't go in kind of like you said, and just like kind of waited for certain story beats and, you know, like, oh, let's just get to this part, get to this part. Like I was back engrossed with the story and, you know, really, really found it to be uh, really uh, a fun book to read and really just compelling. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it as well. Obviously, reading it way back in 2011 spurred me to get the trilogy and finish it up and see the films probably opening night each time. And then rereading it, I was just having a lot of fun with it. And I'm I'm spurred on again to read the rest of them, which (laughs) I, I think that I will in between. So in between other books that I'm reading. So yeah, I really liked it. Well, another really important question that I have, and as people may or may not know from my own show, I'm a bit of a shipper. So this is an important shipper question. But Tom, between the two, if you were Katniss, would you choose Peta or Gale? I really don't care. Um... (laughs) Tom, come on. I honestly, it's it's a toss up. They're both fine. Okay. I don't you really mean fine, hate like fine? Here. Fine as in neither of them is a bad person. Fine. Oh, okay. Like, you know, it's not it's not a situation where one is, like, terrible and she should have chose the other one, you know. Yeah, Gail. Uh, Gail, I mean, I may be PETA because Gail comes off almost as, like, I, it sounds like she kind of has feelings for him. But at the same time, there's sort of a brother-sister thing there. Yeah. I mean, they're not literally related, but you know, there's that there's that sort of that sort of um, friendship there that I don't know. Um, I you know if if they've always kind of come close to a line, but they've saw that there was a line they wouldn't cross as far as you know consummating that romance. You know. Right. So. Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes Katniss super complicated Mm -hmm. because you can't tell what she's actually feeling because she is very confused about it so sometimes in her point of view it's like very hard to figure out what's happening Mm because you would expect to be in her headspace and with at the beginning of the novel I would say that yeah brother sister friends she doesn't like him that way but then these moments where she was she's with Peta she thinks of Gail Mm-hmm. And so almost as if there's a guilt or shame factor in there. So then you wonder maybe she does have some sort of feelings for him. You know, I really like PETA. I think they're just, and I guess it's kind of a romance trope. And yes, yes, I've read some romance novels where, and it doesn't happen in this one, but it does happen in Catching Fire a lot where mm-hmm. they will actually like sleep together and like just they're literally sleeping together mm-hmm. because it's a way I mean it just calms her down she's able to actually rest I think it's just easier for them because perhaps even the cave situation when they're sleeping together it's just a comforting factor yeah yeah I and understand that yeah he just seems like a pretty stand-up guy and you know but this time reading it I was I was feeling a little bit for Gail too. And it's funny because he doesn't really appear at all. I mean, they hype it up, they make it more dramatic in the film because there are certain times where they'll flash and you'll see yeah. Liam Hemsworth. But <laughs> but I think if I were to put, you know, my money down on one of them, then it would probably be Pita. Well, and she is not a female protagonist of 
a young adult book who is pining for a boy the whole time either. Right. Like, she is more concerned with, say, Prim or right. her mother and her family than she is with the boy. So the, the, the fact that these two and the feelings for these two come in, you can tell that there are times where she seems to feel like they're interfering. And it's more like, or they're confusing her. And not in a way that I think is sexist or misogynist or anything. I think it's just a very sort of normal teenagery because she's a teenager. So, like, you know, teenagers are walking hormones. And even if you have a hard scrabble life like she has, those things will get in the way sometimes, especially when there's, you know, this situation and there's somebody around who there's there's a possibility for a romance. Like, you know, you're not always thinking straight, but... She's not giving up everything because she wants to be with him. She's, she really is not spending the entire novel pining for one or the other. No. You know, she, she's very independent-minded. I felt that in the movie they kind of played it up a little too much because they were trying to get that. I mean, I don't think they needed to try to get the Twilight audience, but like that had been the, hadn't that been like one of the big things about at least some of those novels where like who which team you were on. Right. Edward and and all that. Yeah. yeah. Like, so it wasn't, so if, you know, if they felt that they had to go in that direction for the movie, just to kind of play up the romance part, because they thought that teenage girls were going to care more about the romance than the, the, the heroism. I get it. But even then, I think that the heroism and her action and her, her ability and like her strength are the, the real um, place where this book shines. And the romance, like, she could have not had the romance in there or the love triangle in there. Just had, like, not had Gail in there and just had Peta in there. And I think it would have probably played the same. Because I think yeah. the romance thing with Peta in the Hunger Games itself is integral to the plot, you know. Especially the way they go through the whole thing of her, like, you know, kind of playing along with this and then him like, no, I actually have feelings for you. That is interesting. The fact that they have Gail there is the sort of, you know, Gail could have been a girl named Gail and uh, just been a, a hunting companion and like a sister. And I don't think it would have changed much about the novel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it is plot based. Mm -hmm. Everything, you know, it, it starts from Haymitch. Well, even before that, it starts with that interview. It goes Haymitch directing yeah. her to do things. And then, of course, helping him get sponsors for them. So there's a purpose to that. And even if you were to go outside of the Hunger Games, which I'll try not to do this too many times, but I will do it a couple times. Mm -hmm. With Mockingjay, it's a huge point of what, you know, what her feelings are and what their relationship is because, of course, he gets... I was going to say mind wiped, but let's go with brainwashed, brainwashed yeah. by the capital and, and into, I guess, hating her really. Yeah. And, you know, how, how can you come back for that and from yeah. that? So it's pretty interesting. But yeah, Katniss, I think that's one of the reasons why I really like her as a heroine and a YA heroine, because a lot of times in YA novels, and this might be an unfair judgment of them, but a lot of them, I would say, is about romance and the girl, mm. you know, not necessarily trying to get a guy, but ultimately that's what's going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, even Eleanor and Park, right? Oh, well, I think I can't make that judgment because yeah. that they hated each other at first. Yeah, but, the, but then there's it a, does go There's a romance. But then there are other YA novels. Like, I felt that uh, Paper Towns 
is Ugh. she's very close to the uh I'm sure you're familiar with the trope of the manic pixie dream girl. I've not heard that before. What oh, it's that? um the kind of like interesting kind of kooky crazy girl who lifts the ordinary guy out of his um his stupor and shows him what life is kind of really like. Think um Kirsten Dunst in Elizabeth Town or Natalie Portman in Garden State. Or that uh, uh, almost famous? A kind of Penny Lane, Kate Hudson in Almost Famous, kind of, although Kate Hudson's character is a lot more tragic and she's not kind of crazy because Penny Lane is like really cool. So she's the older cool chick. Like Natalie Portman's character in Garden State is um, kooky. You know, she's also mentally ill, but I'm not I'm not saying using the word kooky just to, to as a pejorative. I'm like, she's a kind of like kooky, crazy girl. And, and sure. Um, in Elizabethtown, which is not a very good movie, uh, is um, the same way. So there's that. And I felt that, I can't remember her name, it was like Margot or something in Paper Towns. I felt was kind of like that um, to a certain extent. I don't think Katniss is this. I think, you know, she, she doesn't, because those characters exist to make boring, ordinary white guys feel better about themselves. And that's not what Katniss is here for. Right. Yeah, so she's, uh, yeah, she doesn't chase after a guy. I appreciate her her strength in that. And even, I think, almost dismissing or, like, shoving off all vestiges almost of, like, femininity and saying, you know, she doesn't want kids. Uh-huh. Which is something that <laughs> I get judgment for. And so <laughs> to, to have that, but she has, like, a legitimate reason behind it, you know? And, yeah, just... But she's not completely like a masculine character because of her love of Prim and and just I mean she's an adult and she's forced into that adult role without yeah. well not without anything it just she was forced into that adult role too soon because her father was killed her mother goes basically into like shell shock almost yeah. she's taking care of Prim and then she takes care of Rue she does all of these things which is like a bad idea in the scheme of where you are look at you you're in the Hunger Games and you're taking yeah. care of this 11 year old so I just think she's she's so complex and you can't necessarily put your finger on her but I think she's just a very strong and, and dynamic character and yeah she absolutely has flaws which we'll talk about but overall I, I think she ranks pretty high for me on the YA heroine list as well as just heroines in literature list. And that's a real strength, and that is a very realistic situation for a character to be in because there are kids out there, teenagers out there, some of them are boys and some of them are girls, whose parents, one or more of their parents passes away, there's a divorce, uh, maybe one of the people in the household, maybe one of the parents um, is so wrapped up with grief or they they have a, a substance abuse problem or whatever. There are circumstances that cause that particular kid to grow up really quickly. Like, you know, they end up cooking the meals and they end up doing a lot of the things that the absent parent would have done. You know, kind of in the way that Katniss really does take care of her family. And and I, I had a couple of friends like that in high school who, like, were kind of taking on those things. And there, there wasn't, like, a hardness about them. But there's a – in some cases, there was, like, a world weariness, even if it was subtle, about them. And I think that that's one of the things that, like, Collins really, really does well with this character, that she pulls from what could be a very realistic situation – 
prior to the Hunger Games. Like, you know, you are scrambling to help your family survive because, you know, dad's dead and mom can't, is, is depressed and right. can't you can barely get herself out of bed. And the only other person to help around is a little girl that you're helping to raise. So it's a, a very realistic portrayal of a family like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to take a, a little break and talk about classics for a bit because, okay. of course, that is something that I do on the day-to-day. And now I wouldn't consider you a layman because mm. you've you've read some classics and everything. But whether that that's not necessarily your day-to-day. And so I will say that... There are classic references, and I'm talking like Greek, Roman, primarily I would say Roman, but mm-hmm. I think there are others as well, f- flooded throughout this book, but I would say the trilogy as a whole. So first of all, Pan Am, of uh-huh. course, is the name of, of the, the country, and this is a nice little reference to Pan Am at Kirkenses, which was a term that was first brought forward by Juvenal. Uh, who was uh, a poet in the late first and early second centuries. Wait, that does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Late first and early second centuries AD. And it means bread and circuses. And it's basically, it's a way for the emperors to keep the, the masses entertained and their minds off of what's really going on, which a- absolutely serves the purpose of Pan Am here, right? Because they had these hunger games to keep the minds Uh, of the masses off of what's actually happening. And then you have names, certain names like Cato, uh, Cinna, Plutarch, you know, Roman names that we have. I think it's in Catching Fire that there's this ornate banquet scene and Katniss sees someone, I think, drink olive oil or drink something to have them throw up and continue eating, which is something... Like an apicac type of thing? Yeah, which is something that the Romans, wealthy Romans, of course, would do at huge banquets just so they could enjoy as much as they could, right? They would actually drink olive oil and... and (laughs) <laughs> and then keep going. And even with the the Hunger Games, to a certain extent, and I don't know if the author necessarily intended this, but I get a, a little feel for the Minotaur myth, Minotaur myth, because Minos would demand seven maidens and seven boys from huh. Athens, however many times there's to be basically sacrificed and fed to the Minotaur. So in a sense, you've got that sort of thing going on. But just to say that they're classics throughout. Is this something that you saw? Do you think that knowing it broadens the read of it? Or do you think that without knowing it, you you lose a bit of it? Do you think there are several layers to reading it, either without the knowledge or, or with the knowledge? Uh, I I think it brought in. I think knowing it and knowing the connections, especially to the to ancient Rome, um, really connects it because I know the references that she's making to what was uh, then contemporary American society when this when she was writing this originally conceived it and then wrote it, uh, which was. Um, and I can't remember I, I don't remember my source for this I know I read it years ago that it was a combination of her flipping basically her flipping back and forth on the TV between what was then the main fighting of the Iraq war in like 03, 04 like when she first started kind of coming up with this idea reality TV like Survivor and this is that's where kind of this parts of this got its genesis 
Um, but if, if I look at it from the, the, the perspective of like, you know, this is uh, Pan Am is like ancient Rome where you have Rome as the, as the hub and, and the ter- outlying territories of the empire as the spokes. It really does work because there's this decadence that we associate, especially with like later Rome, you know, before the fall, but you know, that sort of like Caligula and like, you know, some of those kind of nut job emperors where it was bread and circuses. And it was this constant, like we associate with like this orgy of, of, of Epicurean, you know, indulgence and stuff. And, um, you know, you, you see how the people in the capital describe, like, they're they're altering their faces and their makeups just to just to look like just really really odd, you know. And they're eating all these things just for the sake of indulging it, which is also obviously a contemporary swipe at say like Hollywood, you know, and 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 the way the rich can behave in this country too. But then again, you've seen you may have seen the United, the modern day United States compared to Rome time and time again. Anyway. But yeah, I, I think that knowing, I, in fact, I, what I like about that is that when you can make that reference, you can use this as a gateway to look at some of those older texts. Maybe not in their entirety, but you can, you can use this as an allegory or an analogy or some comparative term that uh, at this point in the night I'm not remembering <laughs> um, to say, but this is like Rome. And you could talk about Rome and... I think it makes that connection. So yeah, I think it really deepens the novel. I'm not sure if she was going for that exactly with the Minotaur because it's not a tale that I'm that familiar with. But um, uh, but I think I think your Rome comparison more than Greece too because I mean Greece yeah. had its excesses, but Rome is like known from what I remember about Roman history. Rome is like known for its excesses, especially during certain periods. Right. Yeah. For me, it's always something that. <clears throat> I very much enjoy. Mm-hmm. I like having this depth in in there, and I really appreciate it, obviously, because I'm a classicist. And, you know, it's something also when you're reading Harry Potter, and I teach Latin, obviously, so, or not obviously, but now you know I teach Latin. <laughs> there are moments where we'll be doing a new vocabulary, and it'll dawn on the kids that, oh, wait, that's what that spell was kind of uh-huh. on. You're like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Latin in there. Or her attempt at, <laughs> Rawlings' attempt at Latin. Doesn't she just add the, the the suffix us to everything? Kind of, yeah. Kind of like somebody who's trying to do fake Spanish would add O. Yeah, I guess so, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a lot of them are like actual root stuff. So you can yeah, see where yeah. she was getting it from. But, yeah, I, I very much like this. And I think almost there's a hidden meaning also or a depth to it just the fact that history does repeat itself and you know it comes back around and we're falling into the same pits that we've hit uh-huh. before and it's yeah so I, I think there's a bit of that and why not go back to this height this height of not only extravagance but an empire that spread so far and and fell and what, yeah. what happens to other great places like you know america obviously could be compared to that to Mm -hmm. to babylon as well so i i like that sort of thing isn't there also the aspect and i'm I'm trying to remember what i remember of gladiator games and these sorts of things of changing the rules in the field to suit the whims of the crowd 
at times, kind of like how they do here. I mean, granted, they probably do it for ratings as well, huh. but like how they'll how they'll like you know to move the story along or to smoke sure. them out, like because you know she knows that they're hiding in that cave, and eventually like something's going to happen to drag them out of that cave because right. people are going to get bored. And I could have sworn that they did similar things in Rome, where you know because you needed to keep the crowd happy. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the crowd can play favorites and, and beg the emperor, whoever is putting on the game, to to spare that particular person. And oftentimes, gladiator battles did not go to the death just because maintaining and training a slave was really expensive. Mm-hmm. So often they would just go to first first cutter thing. But, gotcha. I mean, might as well just throw in a Christian there and the, let the animals <laughs> go at them. I was going to say mean, the lions, right? Yeah. Because there's no, you know, why why care about them? So I say that as a Christian, so don't think that I'm like, meh. But no, that really happened to them. So yeah, it, obviously the the circus games in a sense of the Colosseum and, and things like that is, is also a big throwback. So yeah, it's, it's something I like, but it's also hard to read as well, just that it's it's happening again. You know, even though it's a fantasy novel, you think that this barbarism is over, but yet we're, yeah. it's set in the future times and look, we're so barbaric. So it's pretty interesting. Well, I did, my other classic question was about virtues. Okay. And I just wondered what you thought are the virtues and flaws. And I just picked our two leads. If you, if there are others that yeah, you want to that's... expand on, you certainly may. But the virtues and flaws of, of Katniss and Peeta. If you could pick one for each. Does it have to be like... I'm trying because I'm I'm now I'm going back to the Greeks and I'm trying to remember oh, sure. Aristotelian. Well, you could you uh, can do like virtue, a modern what you just would kind of like a character a trait that would be a virtue. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that'd be fine. I think that Katniss, Katniss has this cleverness and this awareness that allows her to have her strength. There is a self awareness of Katniss that I think is one of the most important elements of her personality because that self-awareness makes her aware of those around her and, and allows her to be a strong person in a way that just simply relying on, say, uh, the brute strength of, say, what the um, what the other tributes, some of the other tributes rely on and the skill the other tributes rely on, that's only going to get them so far. That, that kind of gives her a step up, you know, in the games, but also just in general. Like, you know, you, you respect her as a character and you really like her. I think she is a little bit of a pessimist for obvious reasons but she doesn't and this is this is the other thing this is something that i think in some of the later novels that that kind of gets me about her she tends to be such a reluctant hero at times at least from what i remember in the other books like where she doesn't always embrace the role as fully as she should and sometimes that works out really really well especially in terms of her um discussions and confrontations with um, future uh, people in literal positions of power um, in in both Catching Fire and Mockingjay. But um, in other cases, I think it it can come off as like, you know, way too much self-doubt. Now, granted, she's young, so you let that pass. But I think that's one of her one of her flaws. Apita is genuinely nice, you know, and I think that is there's there's a there's a here's a guy with this good heart and that's you know who who is compassionate and i think that's a that's a real virtue of him because there are so many people in districts like district 12 
who are not compassionate, who are very focused on survival, who are very, who are very focused on, they will backstab or betray and act out of self-interest. And there is some sort of, I don't know if you would call it magnanimity, but there's a certain amount of at least compassion in him. I think that his honesty gets him in trouble, though. I think that his he's overly sincere sometimes. And I think that comes off either he's playing into the naivete or he really is just a little, little naive. So I think that would be his flaw. Okay. I think for Katniss, I'll start with her flaw because I think this is easy. She has a lack of self-control or temperance. Uh-huh. And sometimes this helps her out. Like she got the rating of an 11 because of it, but she just speaks her mind and I think she doesn't have a filter. And while this is sometimes good, I think it's, or she rushes into things. I think it's it's also, I think it would be her, her major flaw there. Uh-huh. Yeah, cleverness, I can absolutely see that. And trying to think of a way to like separate her and PETA with, with this particular virtue that she has. But I guess her, I think her loyalty, her loyalty is, is huge to Prim, to, you know, uh-huh. to her family, to the people of District 12, and to Rue when it comes down to it, and then PETA when it comes down to it. And so I think once she's attached herself to you, she, I mean, I wouldn't say it's for life. It is for some people, but I, she's really going to attach herself to you. And it yeah. takes a little while, I think, because of course she feels betrayed by Peta when she <laughs> finds him with the the careers and everything. But see, she and I have so much in common. But I think, yeah, loyalty would be her big thing. For Peta, I like how he stays true to himself. He's not the strongest person, I think, emotionally necessarily just because of his heart, like you said. But he wants to, like that huge speech between the two on the roof, I think said so much about him that he just doesn't want to do anything that would take away from who he really is. And he wants to show that somehow to to the members of the people, which is interesting because I feel like he goes against that a little bit with walking around the careers. I mean, we find out why he was doing this to basically protect Katniss, but it seems like he's betraying her. I mean, to somebody watching at home, they'd be like, well, I thought you loved Katniss, and yet you're betraying her. So that's that was a little interesting. But, you know, his reaction to Foxface dying and, and all these things and not wanting to kill anyone, even though I guess he does bash in that or finishes the job of that one person. And then, you know, you said his compassion, and I would almost say that that is his flaw, or at least his love for Katniss is mm-hmm. his flaw, because I think it makes him do dangerous things and silly things, and it could be positive. It could You could consider it positive because he is trying to protect her, but he should also realize that she can protect herself probably more than he can. And I think it just gets him into some trouble and he probably would have died without her. And then, you know, it just, it leaves him vulnerable as well without him knowing how Katniss really feels. I think like the end of this book is a bit upsetting for anyone who's a a shipper. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this novel is also, it's a a fantasy novel. And Mm -hmm. I guess we could also consider it dystopian. I would also say that it's anti-authoritarian to a certain extent, and anti-surveillance because, well, 
you know, you're putting on a show and, and it's called to our attention all the time that the Capitol is watching and listening. And I feel like this is similar to 1984 that we did. So 1984, when was that written? Uh, 1947, 48, yeah. Okay, so 60 years later, we've got something else. And it's not exactly like 1984, but there, I think there are some similarities there. Do you think that this idea resounds with all generations and you know 50 years from now there's going to be yet another book about surveillance i think so i think and i think it's done by writers to warn us about getting complacent with the amount of surveillance that we allow ourselves to be subjected to you know don't forget the fact that collins is writing this in the mid-2000s which is not soon after the passage of the the patriot act so you know, she's drawing from that, whereas Orwell was drawing from experiences, you know, in the Second World War, et cetera, or, you know, during that, being alive during that time. And uh, there's certainly an anti, anti-authoritarian is a very good way to put it, um, this dystopian piece where there's this sense of a ruling class toying with the other classes, using them for their own gains i mean to the point where you know katniss embodies a anti-authoritarian almost very funny enough american spirit of anti-authoritarianism you know the idea that that the little man or the little woman is always going to stand up to the big albeit to take this back to sports but this is the predominant sport of this thing but the the capital and a couple of the inner districts have tributes who basically train their whole lives to be tributes right Right. so they're people these are people who have essentially an unfair advantage it reminds me katniss's victory it's i i have a reason for explaining this reminds me of the 1980 u.s hockey team because well, they had a coach and they were all kids from different... They were all these kids from colleges across, so they weren't professional hockey players. And, you know, they're the scrappy group of kids and they were going against this behemoth that was the Soviet hockey team. And the Soviet hockey team, they were all technically members of the Soviet military because back then you couldn't be a professionally paid athlete to compete in the Olympic Games. But... That payment through the military, the Russian military, was just their cover. They were, because you you watch interviews with them, they're like, yeah, we never trained on anything military. We constantly played and practiced hockey. They just put us in the military so that we could keep our amateur status. And we were, were, you know, fed and clothed and, and paid. So you have essentially this machine churning out these, this Goliath, you know, it's a David Goliath story. And that's what you have here on some level. You know, you have this these machines turning out these behemoths in terms of their ability to win the Hunger Games because that's all they train these kids for. Whereas there's only been one other person to win um, the Hunger Games from District 12 and it's Haymitch. And we don't find out until Catching Fire how he does it because it's part of a plot point in Catching Fire. So I'm not going to really you know talk about that but um because because you know this is something that people might want to read that we may cover who knows we might cover it come back to it and cover it in a future episode but you know you've got one person and hamich hamich is this drunk you know i mean like so he's not even a hero in in a big way you know so it's um 
you know, there's there's that sort of idea that that the rich or the or the powerful toy with the masses because they need some way to be entertained. You know, the bread yeah. and circus is basically to keep them complacent and keep them compliant, but also because they think so much less of these people, and they're just kind of like it's kind of fun to watch them fight over scraps and things like that. And uh, it's really sick. Um, but I think that, and I think that does resound with all generations. I think there's something in the human spirit that will only allow you to be crushed by the boot of authority for so long before you turn around and somebody wises up and overthrows because the American revolution is not the only revolution where this happened, you know, it, the French, the Russians, the, I mean, it's just, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody gets too much power and the people turn around and are like, no, 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 we, you need to be put back in, we need to take over, you need to be put in your place. And, you know, it doesn't always end well, but I think that, um, you know, I think that she's saying something about that and she's saying something about how we allow ourselves to be kind of lulled into complacency by this, this, this brutal entertainment you know, that we watch, you know, the, the, the war being one of them. Like I remember the beginning of the war and really, I was, I've always, I was always just not to get my political opinions in here, but I was against the war from the moment they were thinking about doing it. And I have friends who are in the military and I have friends who were over there and I have family that was over there and I have, you know, friends who were like really gung ho to the point where I remember emailing a couple of friends, emailing me or in a, like an email chain that we used to have back in the day and talk about how they were watching it on TV. Like it was like it was their best, their favorite new TV show. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. You know, I, I couldn't, I don't know if I could do that. You know, says the guy with the podcast about a comic on about Vietnam. But, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's that, there's, there's the, I'm watching this to be informed. I'm watching this to what's going on, to see what's going on. And I'm watching this to form my own opinion and see whether or not I support this. And if I don't support it, I should probably do something about it. And then there's, oh, cool. Look, they're blowing stuff up in Iraq. And that's the feeling I was getting. And I think that's what she's also talking about here. Like, you know, do you not realize how sick this is? Yeah. And combine it with Survivor, you know, which was huge. I mean, Survivor's still on, but Survivor was huge back in the early 2000s. And combine those two together and you have the Hunger Games. And I think that's that's why I said that's like I, it's really, really uh, just on the nose of her and it really works. And I feel like we're in a very surveilled world now. Uh-huh. Not necessarily by the government, though I'm sure we're being listened to right now. But also just with with Instagram, with Snapchat. Like we're uh-huh. surveilling each other, you know, with Facebook and everything. So it's... It's interesting how how the world has changed, but it's... Who's, who's Twitter going to turn on today? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. But, it you know, just the, the stuff that happens throughout the novel and how careful people have to be, and it's it's a scary place to live that, you know, mm-hmm. you, ha- you have to watch what you're saying at, at yeah. all times. And then, of course, having the AVOX there reminding her of of how she failed in that one regard to help of but of course if she had tried to help what would have what would the point have been yeah. um yeah so it's just interesting that you know 50 years later or yeah you said 50 years later yeah, roughly 
we've got something still dealing with it and, and we're probably still going to have that. So it must be, and I just wonder if kids were realizing that, you know, reading this, what they were necessarily reading. I feel like, no, I feel like they didn't really realize. I think you have to almost be more adult to see that or, or read something like Brave New World or 1984 yeah. and then read this and see, oh, I see the connections there with what's happening. And then you have to ask yourself, why would this be a theme that pops up in more than one novel? And then if that's true, then obviously it's it's pulling from real life. So I hope people start to get that connection. It, it I mean, it became a trend. There were a lot of these, like you mentioned, Divergent. There were a lot of other ones where it was like, I mean, a lot of people must have watched Red Dawn at one point or another. But The original? Yeah. Wolverines. (laughs) But I think that the kids who read it back in 08, they're now, let's let's say you were 13 or 14 when you first read this back in like 08, 09, 10, whatever. You were in high school, junior, middle school. You're in your early 20s now and you have come to realize that the stuff that you read... And how it applies now. Maybe you read 1984 after that. Maybe this was your gateway into 1984 or Fahrenheit 451 or Brave New or whatever the book you wanted to read. And now you're seeing how the world is and perhaps a character like Katniss gave you the strength to do something about it. I would hope. That's, that's my 30-second take on it or whatever Yeah, it I would hope. Yeah. What are the benefits and losses of having the novel being the point of view of Katniss? Do you think it would? Well, it would. But how how much would it change, and what what parts do you think would really drastically change it if it were either third person, either limited or omniscient? It probably would have to be omniscient. I guess it could be limited, and then or Peta being the POV. I really like that Katniss is the narrator. I think it gives us a chance to really get to know her. I think if it was a third person narration, it'd be boring. Not boring, you know. It just it just wouldn't pop the way it does with her. With Peta, I, I like I said, there's something naive about him, and I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be as interesting because Katniss has this world weariness that I've mentioned already, that allows us to see District Twelve and Panem with a critical eye in addition to the the kind of wonder that she sees it at certain points. And uh, and we also see her as this master strider. So I think following her gives us the, the benefit of that. I think if you have the Hunger Games themselves in the third person where you had to carry, where you had to cover as many people as she could because you have to be a little more objective as a narrator, even if you are sympathetic toward Katniss, kind of in that regard, where you're focusing more on her perspective, I think it would get too cluttered. And again, I think it would, I think it would lose something in this sort of. It would be a little too more of a broad view or a little slightly blander version of what you've got here. So I think Katniss really brings this to life. And I, not that I don't like Peta, I just don't. I just think he he would be a too much of a wide-eyed kid, you know, and. Uh, that's not the type of narrator I would want for a, for a story like this. And I think with having it be Katniss, it keeps it consistent because if it were a third person, you would probably force to jump around to other people and see, yeah. you know, what is Thresh doing? Because there's that whole mystery of where is Thresh? And, you know, 
basically no one's been touching Thresh at all. And then what the careers are up to or or all of this stuff, you wouldn't have the suspense of not knowing where Rue was. Yeah. Because you would be there with Rue as Rue is waiting for Katniss. So I think having her be the lead, you get to just stay focused on her and what is her experience in the Hunger Games and not split it 24 different ways. And and it, it allows Collins to make this novel claustrophobic when she has to. Yeah. You know, like she's so enclosed in certain points in the games, whether because of fire, or she's up in the tree or she's in the cave that you kind of feel the walls closing out on you as well. Yeah. So I think that adds to the suspense of the novel. And it adds to the character of Katniss, too, because, like I've been saying, you can't put your thumb on her. She's very complex, and even she can't figure out what her feelings are. Yeah. So, and I think Suzanne, she does a good job of not revealing her hand. I mean, this continues throughout the trilogy of Katniss just trying to figure out what her actual feelings are for PETA. And even Mm -hmm. as a reader, you feel like maybe you understand what she's feeling, but then at the end you're like, well, wait a minute, what just happened? She just confessed that it was all an act. So it's pretty interesting. Now, Twilight, Twilight, of course, is, I shouldn't say of course, I'm so sorry. Twilight is in the (laughs) point of view of Bella. I think the final one may switch around if I remember correctly and it has like some Jacob and then some Renesme, which probably means nothing to you, Tom. But the first the first novel, Stephanie Meyer was writing an alternate to it where it was in Edward's point of view. I can't it's like Midnight Sun, I think it's called. I recall that being published, yes. And I don't oh, recall was it, it doing published? Very well. See I didn't I th- think it was published because it was leaked and so she was like gonna stop she stopped writing. I could have sworn leaked. something along the lines of an alternate take on Twilight was published at some point. Oh, well, besides Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Yes, because people that actually is based off. It's Twilight fanfic. But it would just be interesting to see what and and I only say this because I just read a book called Rhett Butler's People, and it, that is following. Rhett Butler primarily as well as people intimately associated with him and getting that point of view on what happens in Gone with the Wind both before and after I guess through Scarlet kind of and so it would be interesting to just see PETA what PETA was going mm-hmm. through and doing and what his mindset was and but I also think it wouldn't be as interesting because if it's true what his feelings are and they're as deep as they are then I you might be reading something that's drippingly sweet the entire time it might make for like a good novella or short story yeah yeah but not a not a full-length novel yeah a question you had here i'm pretty sure (laughs) yeah it's about little hamish which is your your little guy today and you ask quite abruptly or bluntly why is hamish such a drunk yeah i mean to the point where like he's throwing up on the train yeah and falling Um, in it yeah, ugh, that was gross. I think that what Collins is doing, and I think she's doing a pretty good job of it, I think that on one hand, Hamish lives a very lonely life because he's the only person in that neighborhood, and that's where he's been told to live after winning the Hunger Games. And I think he has PTSD. If not from the games themselves, then from year upon year upon year of sending these children to death and he self-medicates with alcohol 
and that's why he is such a mess. And the, the little bit of he's cynical, completely cynical, but there is some hope in there when he meets Katniss and Peeta that this time it might be different, which is why he eventually, you know, he, he kind of gets his act together to a certain extent. But I think I think he is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and I think it's because of all the things he's had to endure. And I think he's also a very lonely person. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. I would wonder, I mean, I don't think really we can blame him for that sort mm-hmm. of reaction, because seeing that year after year i don't know how many years that has been i mean he's what in his it's been a long he's he's an adult so it's been a long time yeah but you do have to wonder however why he's not sober during the training because it seems like that's a little uh irresponsible just i mean yes he's he's really hurting but he i mean is he causing some of that issues if he were more awake would he be able to help them a little bit more? Is it really just because of Katniss and and Peta and those are the those are the two? Because he was sober a little bit sometimes. Yeah. It might be it might be a little bit of a flaw in his portrayal where like you know he could have been more of a I guess the I don't know if this is an accurate phrase like a functioning alcoholic, but my grandfather who passed away twenty five years ago was a uh, World War Two veteran drank him essentially drank himself to death you know he was an alcoholic but always held down a job always you know like so there was not the you know i've heard stories of of you know how you know there were you know the alcoholism was obviously there and the members of my dad's side of the family kind of are very very aware of it um in their own you know tendencies but the idea that you know whatever affected him whatever caused him to drink whiskey every day and things like that um he was able to go to work every day and stuff like that i I, maybe she played it with too heavy of a hand maybe hamage got triggered somehow and he's worse than he usually is you know i I don't know what maybe a little bit more insight into his character maybe it's a little bit of a flaw that because he's kind of a clown in places too and i think that that might be one of the few flaws of this novel where like i really like the fact that you have this one character who is kind of their key to winning, but he's so messed up because for obvious reasons, like when you do the math, like I said, of how many kids he's sent to die, you're going to be really messed up and you are going to drink your, you are going to crawl into the bottle. I think sometimes it borders on a clownish stereotype of a drunk. So if I have any, and this is a nitpick because I really enjoy this book, but this is a nitpick where she maybe could have, eased up on it a little bit and made him a little bit more of a functioning um, alcoholic like you know did he necessarily need Katniss and Peter to save him or because um, that, that does border on the cliche you know like oh these kids believe in me now I'm going to clean myself up and I'm you know so I don't think it's that they believe in him I think it's that they push him back because yeah, in yeah, that scene on the train where they actually like slap the glass out of the hand and Peter yeah. gets hit, he gets punched and everything, so I think it's that they show spirit maybe where others don't, and they mm-hmm. fight back and are like, snap out of it, man, we need yeah. your help. Yeah, which, like I said, it works. I'm nitpicking, to be completely honest with you, but I think and there are some get, Well, he doesn't get completely sober when he's with them. Like, he's no, still drinking. No. It's just yeah, he's that still, he's not... He's laid off a little bit. Yeah. 
I would say so. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, the the kindnesses that we see. And we'll start with Rue first. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of focus on the fact that Katniss is reminded of Prim by seeing Rue. Yeah. And, of course, they, they strike up an alliance. And, yeah, well, that's a survivor thing, isn't it? And, of course, at the end of all alliances, really, there's only going to be one. So you know that it'll come to the end. Uh, but that doesn't happen, unfortunately. It, they don't get to that point because Rue gets killed. But do you think if Rue had not reminded Katniss of Prim, that events would have transpired differently? Possibly. Or perhaps if Rue had reminded her of Prim, and but Rue didn't turn out to be nice. So there's that sense of, like, I really am all on my own for this type of thing. Because I think that, that when she feels betrayed by PETA, because PETA's with the uh, with the tributes, I don't want to say Rue is the only thing that keeps her going, but she definitely has a sense of higher purpose other than just winning the games by kind of taking care of taking this kid under her wing. You know, it, it plays to the camera well, but because this was the whole reason she jumped into the games was to save her sister. So I'm trying to think of how they would have transpired differently. I don't know if Rue would have even been that much of a character. Like somebody else would have killed her and it would have been a you know, I mean somebody else did kill her but like somebody else would have killed her other than Katniss and it wouldn't have had much of an effect on her. Which is kind of me punting the answer back to you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's key. I think it's a it's a huge detail that she reminds Katniss of Prim potentially in age I think the the sweetness level obviously and because Katniss is in this whole thing because of Prim and how much she's devoted to her family especially Prim I think it's huge if if she didn't and Rue still helped her out with the uh tracker jackers like Mm -hmm. showing them I think things still would have happened the same way. It seems like Katniss, while she is fine being on her own, there seemed to have been a couple times where, like, Foxface especially, like, she may have considered being in an alliance or at least being with people, and she doesn't go out of her way to kill anyone. Uh-huh. So I, I feel like, you know, she's she's looking for maybe a partnership or at least they could have helped each other to a certain extent so I don't know how much differently but I you know the end result of her emotionally being destroyed with Rue mm-hmm. getting killed and then sort of flipping her first middle finger at the Capitol <laughs> and how she you know doing the the funeral rites almost yeah. classic reference there uh I I think that would wouldn't have happened that would have just been well it's another dead person another cannon another face in the sky but it impacts her more and I think as the the readers we also get attached to her because Katniss gets attached to her. That's a good point. That's a really good point. So then the other thing is in regards to kindness, there are some characters like Katniss and Thresh that feel like they owe 
somebody for kindness. So Katniss, of course, feels like she owes Peta for the bread situation yeah. way back when. Thresh feels like he owes Katniss for being kind to Rue, who is from his district. And there are other people, specifically Peta, who don't expect payment for their kindness shown. So almost a Christian idea, right, of, of just do something out of the goodness of your heart. You're not looking for mm-hmm. anything in return. Why do you think we, we have this breakdown in characters? What is it about those two that feel like they owe somebody for kindness and then Peta, of course, that does something out of the goodness of his heart? I, I think it's just a, it's a good contrast. that They're foils for one another in that way. You see how the world has affected each of them differently. Um, you see a little bit of how, how Katniss has been hardened by this world. I don't think Katniss thinks anybody would owe her for an act of kindness. I don't think that's just not how she comes off to me. So, so she wouldn't come around and collect on that. But I do feel that she has a feeling of guilt and duty toward people, especially because of probably the way she was raised and the circumstances around which she was raised. And that there's, like I said, Peta being compassionate and kind of owning his own privilege in some way. You know, he's got a pretty good gig at home. He's a baker's. He, he works in a bakery. He doesn't have to scrap for food. You know, he his clientele are the people who can afford the bread, so it's not people like Katniss. It's people kind of in the upper parts of the district, the mayor and people like that. There is something virtuous in, in the way that he is very genuine in the way he expresses it. Um, Rue, I feel it's like a familial thing almost. Like, you know, this is someone that she feels that she can trust and maybe she's a little too naive because she's a little kid and she trusts people like that but she definitely feels something like a kinship with Katniss and and she does this she doesn't expect Katniss to repay her or anything like that so but yeah so I think they they end up being foils for one another and Katniss and Thresh are very much alike in that regard where like Thresh comes to her aid because it's like you know you did a nice thing for somebody and you know I owe you because you help my sister for lack of a better word out, you know? So. Right. Yeah. And I, I think there's a childlike innocence to both Rue and Peta mm. that, which is interesting. Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's otter, I suppose. To say there's like a naivete about them. Yeah. Rue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've used that word before. And, you know, partly, partially because of, I think the age, uh, but okay. also like you said, Peta has been, I think, more fortunate in his growing up where he is, I will say, but not with whom because his mother is physically abusive to him, as we see. And, you know, the comparison, I I think also just being in Districts 11 and 12, it seems like the farther away you get from the capital, the worse people are off and really mm-hmm. just striving for hunger. So I think Thresh and Katniss have been around long enough that they realize what they need to do to, you know, to survive. And, and they don't want to owe anybody anything. But if they're given something, they feel like they have to pay it back because they don't want charity. I think there's a pride about them as well. And mm. for Katniss, I mean, you know, going to the hob, that's what it's called, right? I think so. The hob and all that, that's, you know, you give and you get something in return. There's not lending or borrowing sort of situation. So I think it's, it's, it's very like a much bartering. Her, yeah. yeah, her experience that 
yeah, almost that that burnt bread was a barter, mm-hmm. and now she's got to find some way to to pay him back. Do you think she'll ever feel like she's e- even with him because she technically saved his life several times in the seventy fourth annual Hunger Games? So, do you think she'll ever feel like, oh, we're even now? I don't know if it's in her too. She does seem to carry a lot of guilt and a sense of obligation and duty with her. Perhaps when all is said and done, and they're finally, finally safe, they would be, you know, she would think of that. But as this book ends, you know that the safety is not coming anytime soon, so. Right. Well, let's move on to to the Capitol a little bit, and just a couple questions about them. So first of all, the Capitol is very particular about what it does and does not want the viewers to learn about other districts. Why do you think it it tries to keep those secrets? Like it doesn't want 12 to know about 11, et cetera, either visually or audially. And how would it benefit the capital to keep those secrets to themselves? Oh, it's just in the same way that, that it, it benefits. Uh, they're, they're using the flow of information to control the cap the, the populace in like 1984 or Fahrenheit 451. Uh, if you can keep the uh, populace ignorant to a certain extent, of certain aspects of their world, they're easier to control. So, okay. and and also, kind of how Big Brother and, and the party keep the proles dumb. You know, like the proles are the biggest part of the population of um, uh, Oceania, but they're not conscious. You know, until they become conscious, they can't revolt. But they cannot revolt unless they become conscious, or whatever the, the saying is in the book. So, they know that there are other districts out there, but they don't. They and they know a little bit of. They don't really know much about them. She figures it out as she goes along in terms of like you know what each district is for, and uh, and you notice that the further you write, the further out you get. The more, the further out you get, not only does life become harder, but like the purpose of the district becomes more about the raw materials than the industry. So you further further you go in, the more industrial you get, and like you know because I think isn't eleven like agricultural, whereas uh, district twelve is coal. Or something like that. So there, there's a there's a raw material aspect to them. But yeah, like if you don't, if they don't know what each other does, they don't know anything about each other. They cannot communicate with one another. They cannot band together and revolt together and overthrow the capital. So it's it's a it's a control thing. It's it's an insurance policy as well. Yeah. Do you think there's also does it sow some seeds of suspicion that maybe some capitals think other capitals are better off? Yeah, I think that's the other thing. I think you can you can also pit these people against one another if you have to. You can you can make it seem like the other poor person next to you is getting more than your fair share and you can you can get the masses fighting each other and then you don't have to worry about them fighting you. Yeah. Agreed. Let's see, the mutations, as oh. they're called. We've got so many things here. Of course, there were That's three freaky. that we... Yeah, I know. There were three that we had. Of course, the Mockingjay mm-hmm. is a mutation. The Tracker Jacker is a mutation. And then we have the Wolf Mutts that happen later. Now, the last two, because Mockingjay for... Well, I was going to say, yeah, it was, it was created for a negative reason. It was for surveillance to mm-hmm. repeat conversations back. And then the people wisened up and they started using that for for silly reasons. And then they just stopped using that. And so now it's um, Rue uses it to call work time. There are signals mm-hmm. between uh, the two of them, Katniss and Rue and the Hunger Games. Tracker Jackers were during the war, I believe. 
And after the war, they destroyed all of them in the capital, but let the rest just stay where they are, of course, because the capital doesn't care about the other regions. And then the mutts, we find out, that are created at the very end. I don't really know how scientifically this works, but I guess they were able to revivify the resurrect. I'll go with that. Resurrect the dead tributes and create them into these mutts here. So just to give you a sense of what these are if you haven't read the the Hunger Games. So what do you think the capital's attitude is towards living things? And what about their creations like these mutations? What do you think the capital's stance is on all this? I, I think that the nature and the world and living things are there for them to manipulate and do with what they see fit. I think that they're they're drunk on their own power. Um, there's no sense of religion in this entire religion as we know it there's no um i don't think any of them necessarily are christian or jewish or muslim or whatever you know the the capital is the religion so to speak it which is which is typical for dystopian literature you know and so the capital can play god as it wants to play god and you know it can and it can do these things the mutations of the of the wolf mutts are particularly horrific because they're essentially Frankensteining these things together to bring up right. the novel we just discussed. But yeah, it's it's like you picture something, and I know that in the film they just went with dogs because yeah. from what I understood, I read this a little while later um, on IO9 or, or or the AV Club, they had designs for the um, for the mutations of the wolves with the characters' faces on them, but they couldn't get the renderings to look realistic enough. Oh, okay. So they they were in a pre-production. They were going for it, but they couldn't get it to work. So they went with what they went with, which I commend the filmmakers for because that's one of the big scenes of the movie. Yeah, and if it starts to look goofy, like something out of, like, because you've had this, like, really, just to talk about the movie for a moment, it's shot, like, very born identity, like, where there's a lot of handheld and cam work and that sort of thing. And it's, it's a more modern action film. So if you go back to like Ray Harryhausen special effects, which is nothing against oh. the stop motion Harryhausen stuff. Them. But if you go back to that sort of stuff where it's going to come off as really goofy looking, you know, so you don't want to you don't want to take your chance with that. But with this, it's like and that's I think that the those creatures, it's such a psychological edge on the part of the capital. You know, it's such a, it's a piece of control and it's directly right at her. You know, they couldn't care less about um, Cato and what he thinks of all the people. Because Cato has no compassion toward any of the other tributes. He wants Katniss dead. He wants Peta dead. He wants to win. But with Katniss and Peta, especially Katniss, you know, they're going to throw all of them at her because more creatures, the merrier, because then they can, you know, they have a better chance of killing her. But like the one that's most important is the one that looks that was made from Rue, right. because they all saw that, and that's them reestablishing their control. That's them reminding her, "Hey, we're the ones who are turning the screws." So, it really is effective. Even if she wins, it's still effective. It's going to haunt her. Do you think that the the mutts at the end are more dangerous psychologically than they are physically? Yeah. I think so, because I think they could have sent anything. They could have just sent a pack of wild dogs at her. They could have sent leopards or cheetahs or panthers or or, 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 or could have been snakes. 
you know, were alligators or something. They could have sent anything at her that that was physically going to kill her. And it would have had the same effect that could have ripped her to shreds. It's the fact that it was her friend that is that makes it more terrifying. The psychological outweighs the physical in this so much. I agree with you about the representation of of the capital. I think mm-hmm. in a way they're almost like the the Greek or Roman pantheon in the fact that, you know, for the gods morals were just playthings yeah. and they could do whatever they wanted. And so there's there's not much care or concern for other living creatures. And they're all jealous they're of one another and, and yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, you're right. That's re- that's a really really good comparison. Yeah, I just have a couple more questions. Sure. Uh, three, and then we'll we'll wrap up. One of them is something I've been thinking about actually uh, as we as I reach the end of my second read through there. Cadmus's hearing. So this was a big blow for her after she blew up the pyramid of food. She noticed that her left hearing was gone her right was buzzing but it came back and so she thought this is the end of it which is huge for a hunter and and she focuses on that the fact that she really needs both of her ears in order to be whole mm-hmm. and and back to what she does in district 12 so at, when she when they come back to the capital her hearing is restored in her left ear but Peta's leg which was mangled by the mutt by a mutt uh-huh. was not and so he ends up losing it and has a prosthetic limb in place why do you think or is there a reason do you think there's some deeper reason for why Katniss was able to be healed but Peter was not two possibilities one is that they did not have the capability to grow an artificial limb of flesh for Peta, so they couldn't fix the leg or they couldn't or they couldn't save it like it just the science wasn't there i kind of don't think that's true based on the way they create the mutations and the way that the people of the capital give themselves surgery to alter their appearance all the time it's sorry i was just thinking i'm trying to think of other things they've done and i thought of like the whole concept of the avox the fact that you are a, a dissident who was captured and they rip out your but yeah. that's like, and the, like that's the freaking too. And all of this yeah. Oh stuff. God. Yeah. It's just, so so they certainly have it. So my thing is is that 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 in and maybe this is me just being cynical toward the capital, <laughs> right? They did it to mess with her because even if because you know we know what happens in the second book, but um, <laughs> and that they could call it again, but because they have a quarter quell, but. Yeah. Um, let's say they weren't. It's like and she becomes a hero to people around Penem. She's always going to be reminded. He's always going to have the prosthetic limb. So it's it's like a long con, you know. Is he going to resent her over time? Are we going to undermine the love story because he's going to be like, you took my leg, you know, that like you should have let me die. Or like, you know, that he's they're going to be able to so like blame, have him blame her for this or something, you know. Like it's yeah. the, or it's the thing that the guilt of that consumes her. She couldn't save him wholly. And and so that, in some way or another, turns people against her. It turns them against each other. But yeah, it's to undermine her in whatever way they possibly can. That's what my thought is, actually, that the, the Capitol may have done this purposefully. Because I think Snow knows that she's the, the leader in all of this. I think he might recognize that PETA... Mm-hmm 
plays a part, but he's not the mastermind. And so I think in, in having this, and you can see even that reaction, which is so real, I think, in their interview when she finds out that, that he has that prosthetic limb and, and how yeah. guilt-ridden she is. And, you know, she owes him for that bread. And, and I think even though she saved his life, she couldn't fully save him, as you yeah, said. Yeah, what cost? Yeah, so I, I think it's something that they're just trying to pull her down and it'll always be a, a little memento there of I couldn't fully save you. So I, I do think that it might be, which is something I didn't get out of the first time that I read it. I think maybe I just thought that they weren't able to save it. But this time I thought, I think there's something sinister behind this because Snow, I think, knows right away um, once all of this stuff happens. So Yeah, and Snow as a character becomes more prominent in the other two books. Yeah. He's kind of like Palpatine here. He's the he's the Emperor Palpatine of this trilogy, and in Star Wars, Emperor Palpatine's not even a character. He's mentioned very briefly as the Emperor, and he appears in a hologram in Empire, and then he's he's the big bad in Jedi. And I feel that that she does that. She brings Snow in a little earlier because she brings Snow into Catching Fire, but I really do feel like she does that kind of with Snow in this trilogy where she she, she just gives us a little bit of a tease that, like, you know, who he is, but then he'll become more and more important as this, as this goes on um, because it's more and more of his concern, too. Right. So, yeah. And that's, I like Snow as a character, as a villain. It's a, in, in the other two books, he's a really good villain. In regard to the people who are actually watching the games, mm-hmm. why do you think they've come to accept the celebration of killing? In the Hunger Games, or even how we could say how or why, I th- it probably started by force. You know, remember the the Hunger Games started as a reminder that you know you have to pay tribute to the capital that gives you all these things, and a reminder of like what happens when you rebel, right? Because it commemorates the crushing of the rebellion, from what I remember. And maybe over time, it's because this is what the seventy fourth, right? So you're talking right. a couple of generations worth. There's, nobody's really around to remember the first Hunger Games. Nobody's <laughs> really no. I mean, no, this but this no, is important true. because this yeah. is this is the tradition. This is the way we've always done it. So we might recognize that it's barbaric, but it's a tradition, and those things are very very powerful in societies. Um, plus, I think that some people are lulled into complacency. I think some people genuinely like to see the killing. It's sport. In the same way that, like, you know, our modern society can't comprehend the brutality of, say, the pan- the, the bread and circuses of ancient Rome and allowing people to fight to the death or whatever it was. But at the same time, we still watch, like, we, we watch football, we watch hockey, we watch brutal sports in some cases, like UFC. Yeah, boxing. Whatever, boxing. Makes which is, dude, boxing has its origins and wrestling has its origins and... Yes, Greco-Roman is. society, you know, yeah. so these ancient games and stuff. So it's it's kind of like, you know, just it's it's just an extension taken to an extreme of, you know, of this brutal society, which is post-apocalyptic anyway. So you don't know what, what um, their tolerance for violence against their fellow man has become since over the generations, since whatever apocalyptic event happened, you know. In fact, Collins never elaborates on that ever. We just know that there was some sort of huge apocalyptic event, and from the ashes of that sprang Panem. But I don't think we really need to know yeah, I was gonna what it was. I think it's just it that, that it happened. Yeah, I don't think it matters that, it, that what it was. I think it just matters that it happens. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the forcing, Gail, of course, talks about what if we just didn't watch it? What if everyone just didn't? And now it's like you can't look away sort of situation. And yeah. I guess it, it pulls people away from the doldrums because I think it's because it's mandated. I guess it gives them freedom also from working potentially. That's true. And also there's a lot on the line for it because the district that wins gets food. That's true. Which is not necessarily as important for the inner-lying districts, the ones closest to the capital. Mm -hmm. But for 11 and 12, that's huge. And you can cultivate a mob mentality out of something like that, too. Yeah, yep. So. So. Well, my final question is about the Nightlock or the Berries. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that it's it's an act of rebellion against the capital? Was it an act of rebellion for both Katniss and Peeta or just one of them? I think he's going along with her because she's driving it. He chooses he, he would have chosen to do it anyway, so it's probably both of them. You know, they're they're acting as a team. She's controlling the game. You know, the whole thing, the back and forth, the mutations are the, the, the wolf dog things, wolf mutts are them saying, Oh no, 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 we're in charge and her finally pulling out, you know, the last you know, the last card that she's been holding on to, so no, I'm in charge here and forcing their hand so it is an act of rebellion because she's controlling the script yeah i i think so i mean once she realizes that the capital needs a victor and what's going to mm-hmm. happen if there is no victor and that would well it would defeat the purpose of the hunger games it would, i wonder it would I make guess a lot of people to, mad <laughs> it would make a lot of people mad yeah and it, i think it would also give hope to some of the the districts as well mm-hmm. that you know they can go against what's been put down as as law and i'd also agree that katniss is the one doing it and i think Peta doesn't necessarily realize i think up until the moment because she says you know trust me so i think he is just going along with what she's do what she's been doing the entire time because it's she's the the shot caller in in this whole thing and he follows along so yeah well especially since at one point she got a gift one of those gifts they get yeah. From I think it was District Eleven. Yes, the bread. And yeah, so so the idea is that she knows that other districts are watching and have like are cheering her on, you know. Yeah. So that could incite a bit. Like the, she has At an least idea. The outer line ones. I don't know if like one, two, three, four. That's would true. Be necessary, That's true. But, but yeah. she, she understands the gravity of what she's doing in a way that Peta might not. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's all I have. Unless there's another question that you saw. I no, skipped not a couple. that I can think Are of. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. good. Would you teach us? Would you recommend it? Would you read it again? Actually, all three. Um, I think this would work really well in an 11th grade American Lit class uh, for students who are on a little bit of a lower reading level. Um, I think it could be a companion to a piece of other dystopian literature that you use or as we were saying earlier to something maybe more classical um you know maybe maybe a a look at the romans for instance um because there's not a lot of roman literature that gets touched on in a high school like in my high school curriculum there i could probably find an excerpt from like the aeneid or something but beyond that you know you they probably learn about ancient roman history class and that's about it 
uh, as much as they cover ancient Greece in ninth grade English, it's the Odyssey. So there's you know there's only so much we cover. So this would be a really good interest a gateway into either the history behind Rome or something. But it also could go the other way where I could use this and we could talk about we could read Bradbury or Orwell or, or maybe another book that I'm not thinking of right now. Um, so yeah, I think and I think that with students who are reluctant readers, because um, I think AP kids would have fun with it, but I think it's you know it's it's for all the stuff we have to cover in AP, I think it's just you know it would just be for funsies and it'd be a good discussion, but I don't think it would be as have as much of an impact as it would on the students I have who are reluctant or struggling readers because this is not a hard book to read. So um, and and I think you could take full advantage of it, and I would recommend it to anybody who has not read it. It is it is not showing its age. It is aged very well. Yeah. Um, and in, and um, and it's it might I'd be read, a timeless book. I think it's getting there. I really do. I I I'd forgotten this has been around for this long. You know, and things have come and gone in its place, and some of them are, you know, some of them I think are. Uh, have a little more stay, have have some staying power but this has more staying power than um than a, a lot of other young adult literature i think you know because of and because of its place in our popular culture as well the movies did so well i think that certainly helped yeah i think it'd be a great companion to some of the roman stuff that i do in my latin classes you know taking a break maybe and reading some mm-hmm. excerpts or something like that uh, of course, I would recommend it, and I've read it already twice, so I would read it again. But I think it's nice to read it with gaps in time. You know, it was about seven or eight for me, like it was for you, and, and yeah. it's nice to have a little distance from it before coming back. Yeah, I think you could do uh, one of the cool things. I remember Amanda and I doing when we had read when we were reading these because she would read them and I that would read them is we went online and we found people who had drawn maps of Panem. Um, over because Panem is in North America, so it, like, where is District Twelve? District Twelve is like here. It's supposed to be like Appalachia, so it's supposed to be like West Virginia, like a little further south of here. So like, we're not very far from where District Twelve would have been. Um, the once destroyed District Thirteen is probably like the northeast part. So like, people had placed different districts in the capital being like in the Rockies, like right around Denver. So putting that around there and imagining that world and then kind of overlaying Rome on top of it and seeing the similarities and seeing how they kind of operate would be a pretty cool geographical historical exercise. Absolutely. Okay. Well, now we've got some listener feedback. We do. Um, We have a couple of Facebook comments from Robert Ward. We are releasing this the day we released Frankenstein, so um, we don't have any big email from anybody yet. Hopefully, we will get some. But uh, this was right before, I think uh, this came, this was left right around the time we released our last episode prior to Frankenstein. And he says, before the uh, release of the upcoming episode on Frankenstein, I've only been able to read one comic adaptation, although I would like to read the classics illustrated sometime soon. The one I read was an adaptation, Viz, released last October by horror mangaka, mangaka, Junji Ito. Ito, a former dental student, is known as a premier creator of weird and unsettling stories, with numerous stories being adapted to film, and most recently an anime series called Junji Ito Collection. You'll have to tell me if this is um, 
like beginner anime approved or whatever your rating is on uh, BTO. <laughs> Although Viz's collection of Frankenstein is over 400 pages, the adaptation of the titular story is only about half of the contents with short stories following afterward. Included are short stories about his old family dog, a couple of standalone stories in series following a student named Oshikiri, who discovers that his Western-style home contains a doorway into another dimension, as they all do. The Frankenstein adaptation itself is surprisingly faithful and follows the original Mary Shelley novel with only minor changes, such as how the monster seeks his vengeance on his creator. Overall, the story is good, although Ito's storytelling really shines when he arrives at the more gruesome elements and the monster himself. Although very functional, Ito is particularly terrifying and capable of creating very startling imagery. Examples see the attached photos, and he commented several comments after with some, um, like the cover and a few other, uh, uh, another cover, and I think he had a couple of other, uh, like, pages from inside of it as well. If you want to read a horror manga with some creepy psychological and bizarre stuff, I would hardly heartily recommend Frankenstein, uh, with the caveat that the Oshikiri stories may be more satisfying comparatively. I've never read any manga, so, and I've watched maybe like three anime movies and like two TV shows, so I'm not a manga or anime person. What about you? I know you're. This is your. This is your bag. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've not watched that so it's something that potentially i think i saw on required reading whoa no that's not it goodreads he was uh-huh. doing something or he may have posted something i thought oh, this looks interesting but uh yeah i'm not sure i'm more of a slice of life as it co- it's called you know school uh manga or you know uh-huh. some, some romance things like that so that's that's what i look for rather than horror personally yeah, my um mine was i guess what you would refer to as mecca okay yeah giant robots robotech. fighting each other yeah Ro- robotech um voltron which is anime inspired i have seen um spirit away and princess <gasps> mononoke which i both Good enjoyed and i have seen akira oh that's another well And I may have caught bits and pieces of ones because I had a roommate in college uh, my sophomore year who was like really into anime. I remember you told me about this person. uh, And he he had a couple of those like really kind of whacked out like hentai tentacle porn ones. Yeah, so. And you walked in on him watching that? Yeah. So. Um, there was one about ninjas though that was not that, but it was a pretty cool looking ninja 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 yeah. squirrel. I think it was called. It was pretty cool. Okay. And anyway, so all right, but he does have two more comments. So why yeah, don't you go does. ahead and read those? Yeah. So he says in honor of Gallifrey One this past week and the Prof and Shag going, it should be added that not only did Big Finish create an adaptation of Frankenstein, they also made Mary Shelley a companion to the Eighth Doctor. And this was her first appearance. I don't even know what Doctor Who is. I think Doctor Who doesn't exist. I think he's on first base. Cult. He's on first. Yes. What's on second? Not only was Frankenstein adapted into a Marvel comic, but once Toei, the Japanese company, produced an anime of both Dracula and Frankenstein from Marvel. Dracula is the superior of the two because it's just so bonkers. I can see that because I don't know. Have you ever read Dracula? No, I have not. Dracula is this. It, it's it, it's a not. We will have to read this at some point because Dracula oh, no. from I've read it twice, 
And I read it back <laughs> in high school, and then I read it maybe like five or six years ago. And it's it's this it's a vampire novel, obviously, and it and it's it's this gothic. It has a lot of gothic elements to it, and there's this underlying sort of. I don't want to call it like eroticism, but there's so much about sex that's kind of the subtle underlying themes and tones of it that like you could see where it would get kind of bonkers if it in the hands of somebody who wants to like can you use metaphors and and things like that and then like really send it off the rails. Yeah, cuz wasn't vampirism like a metaphor for an STD of some sort? Yeah, it's just because it's like again, it's it's repressed it's repressed rich, rich white people in 19th century England. Okay. So and and so he's preying on them and it's just it's it's way more eerie than it is a horror piece from what i remember but um it's really effective what would happen if dracula went up against jane Eyre? he'd get lured into the attic and then uh, what's her name would set him all on fire <laughs> was it um was it and there was abraham lincoln vampire hunter it was pride and prejudice and zombies zombies yep. yeah that's what it was yep yep okay well, of course, this is everyone's favorite time when you get to, and Robert's favorite time, right? Where he's mm-hmm. he's biting his his fingernails, he's clenching really tightly, wondering what we're going to pick. So, Tom, what are we going to do next month? He's going to look at the size of this book and be like, "What are you trying to do to me?" <laughs> I hope you can find a good audio. We are we're going for a big one. This is one of our this is one of our big like big in terms of like literal size. We did Don Quixote last summer. This is bigger in page count than Don Quixote. We are reading the unabridged version, by the way, unabridged edition of the Victor Hugo classic Les Miserables. Woo! Yeah. Let's do it. Let's knock it out. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so that'll be uh, that'll be next month after that. And we'll talk about episode 30 on our next episode. But after that, we will be uh, looking at uh, what you guys have chosen for the episode 30 topic. We put it out to you. so And then we then we kind of switch back where I take the odd episodes again. Or I yeah. take the even episodes again or whatever it was. So, But yeah, that's it. So thank you again. Uh, please keep the feedback coming. We always love that. You can follow us on Twitter at RecReadingCast. That's R-E-Q, ReadingCast. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. And until next time, may the odds be ever in your favor. Yes. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. Attention, attention, tributes. There has been a slight rule change. The previous revision 
allowing for two victors from the same district has been revoked. Only one victor may be crowned. Good luck, and may the odds be ever in your favor. should go home. One of us has to die. They have to have their victor. No. They don't. Why should they? No. Trust me. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. <laughs>